0: This is Bold Dominion, an explainer for state politics in a changing Virginia. I'm Nathan Moore. Well, I guess Dominion will have to chalk this one up in the seemed like a good idea at the time column. The Atlantic Coast Pipeline project is dead. For the last six years, Dominion Energy has been working to build a natural gas pipeline from West Virginia to Hampton Roads. But grassroots opposition and cold hard economic changes combine to make this massive project untenable. And now, Dominion is out more than $3 billion that it already spent on the pipeline.
1: Well, let's just call it imperial overstretch.
0: <laughs> That's Richmond-based
1: journalist Peter Galaska.
0: He says Virginia's lax energy oversight and campaign finance laws have emboldened Dominion to take on a bullying attitude over the years, and to get involved in investments in projects that have nothing to do with providing electrical service to Virginia customers. We'll hear more from Peter in just a moment. In the second half of this episode, we'll hear from New York Times renewable energy correspondent, Ivan Penn. He'll take us through the economics behind the big decisions that utility companies make. But now, reporter Peter Galaska walks us through Dominion's decision to cut the pipeline project, and what that could mean
1: for Dominion's role in Virginia
0: going forward.
1: You know, this has sort of been in the cards for a while. I mean, maybe from two years ago, it's been the pipeline's been around for six years. But, you know, there have been a number of different tea leaf things. Number one was that people really realized that the need for the gas isn't really there, it's dwindling. Secondly, Dominion has partnered, had been partners with uh, Duke Energy and with the Southern Company, a big Atlanta utility. And earlier this year, the Southern Company dropped out. And then the CEO of Duke was saying she was saying things such as "Well, we don't know," and so finally, after keeping things looking happy for a while, ACP just announced suddenly that it's over. And um, it's an eight billion dollar pipeline, and uh, they've already spent about a billion 08, eight on it. And in, in a related or somewhat related development, Dominion announced it was selling just about all of its natural gas resources across the country to Warren Buffett's group for, what, $9.7 billion. So it's a big change. It's a thunderclap. So
0: I know Dominion now is kind of trying to to save face where it can. It's blaming the uh, environmentalist obstructionists and saying it's concerned about the future of energy uh, resilience in America and all this kind of thing. Why does it say it pulled the plug?
1: Basically, um, And this is really somewhat disingenuous if you look at the long term. So about two years ago, they started this uh, not too subtle effort at rebranding themselves, which I found to be somewhat amusing, because all of a sudden they were into wind, they're into solar, they're announcing project after project. And they they took out ads all over the place and, and big state newspapers, full-page ads saying, we're the green company now. At the same time, they were continuing pumping money and effort into the uh, pipeline. And now they're saying, well, we're really green. You know, hey, we have this pilot project off the coast of Virginia Beach. We're going to have a huge wind farm out there. We're going to be the leading wind utility in the country. Then all of a sudden, when they finally find a way out of the pipeline, which was really eating them alive, they said, oh, well, this is because we've changed, which, you know, believe that. The thing was, is that the pipeline used at the time Dominion's really strong arm policies and approaches. Um, One of the things they did, for example, they just sort of announced the pipeline out of the blue and in areas around Charlottesville, around that area, and also in the mountains and elsewhere. They just said, "Well, we're we're going to survey your land, whether you like it or not. If you say no, we're going to sue you." They wanted to steamroll everybody. They went to FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which has never really been known to turn much down, and got approval from there. And then, luckily, uh, the homeowners, the environmentalists, mounted a very clever and long-lasting defense through attrition. And as they stalled things, the pipeline cost went from like five billion to eight billion, and then it just became unviable.
0: You know, So you said that the uh, pipeline proposal has been around for about six years. And I remember mm-hmm. years ago when you and I were talking about this, I remember you, you saying that if the pipeline opponents can drag this out long enough, then eventually maybe Dominion will just scrap it, which turned out to be prescient.
1: Well, it wasn't really that prescient when you consider, because this happens a lot of times with big infrastructure projects for energy. One of the lead organizations in the fight was based in Charlottesville, which is a Southern Environmental Law Center. And it was really their regular legal challenges that forced the issue, and it was hard work. Really leads to results.
0: What I've been struck by over the years on this one is that there really were three different uh, sort of interwoven strands of, of grassroots opposition. There were the environmentalists, of course, which you know you kind mm-hmm. of expect. Um, But then there was also a group of of, uh, real racial justice advocates because of the proposed Mm -hmm. compressor station in Union Mm -hmm. Hill, a historically black community Mm -hmm. in in Buckingham County. And then there were the property rights crowd, the uh, don't mess with my land kind of, you know, typically more right wing uh, advocates. I mean, how did these come together and how did it all play out?
1: Well, you know... um... You got a common enemy, uh, you, you ban forces and that seems to have happened. Take for example, the social justice people. I mean Union Hill in Buckingham County is a largely African American community and Dominion wanted to put a large compressor station right there. And you know typically you know, this, is, this happens over and over again in the country that a big you know annoying energy infrastructure projects always go where poor people live. So that is a big victory for them. And as far as the property right owners, I mean, a lot of them, for example, are retirees who are well off, who wanted vacation homes or retirement homes in bucolic Virginia and find they're going to be right on top of a pipeline. And also the wintergreen crowd of uh, affluent people and condos and golfers and skiers were very upset because the pipeline would go right by the entrance to wintergreen. So you're right. you had three disparate groups that banded together, and they all work together, and that's one reason the pipeline's dead. But I think the big reason is economics. So.
0: Well, the the grassroots groups, you know, caused enough of a, a a headache and made things drag out long enough to where the economics changed.
1: Absolutely, and that's the thing. I mean, don't forget, you go back six years. What's that? 2014. What happened in 2014? Fracking. Fracking really took off in the Marcellus fields in West Virginia and Pennsylvania and to some extent Ohio. And uh, the price points were right for it. And so they brought it in and people were making lots and lots of money. Of course, fracking is kind of a lot messier than traditional you know, drilling. But in any event, they were a victim of their own success because what they did was they brought in so much gas that the gas prices lowered. A fracking well would cost maybe 12 million, whereas a regular gas well is a million. So they had to find, you know, people to pay the loans to fund it. Well, as the gas prices crashed because there was so much, um, you know, they couldn't pay their loans. And one of the biggest telling factors was just a few weeks ago, Chesapeake Energy, the original Pioneer fracker, they went bankrupt. So once again, you you drag things out long enough, the economics of energy change. They always change.
0: I'm struck, Peter, by how uh, we've seen in the last... I don't know, five years, maybe a little more uh, in Virginia, a real expanding loss of faith in Dominion uh, to do the right thing. Um, and you see that in, in a number of arenas, both obviously the opposition to the pipeline, which is very public and, and spread, um, but also then in, in terms of our state politics, where a contingent of the Democratic Assembly candidates mm-hmm. and now members refuse to take political campaign contributions from Dominion. Um, you
1: know, what's what's going on? Well, let's just call it imperial overstretch, <laughs> i to use that word, but it's true. I mean, you know, Dominion for so long, uh, because of Virginia's lax ethics laws, you could take as much money as you wanted from Dominion as long as you reported it, and so that's what happened. I mean, they just pumping you know hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars into various campaigns, and this emboldened Dominion to take on a really kind of bullying attitude. For example, coal ash removal. They needed to remove coal ash from a number of um, plants, coal-fired plants. Dominion wanted to do it its minimalist, cheapo way without putting liners under the ash pits. They just were going to dewater them and put them to some cleaning and then dump them back in the river. And people were really upset about that. In other examples, Dominion insisted on putting a high-tension, high-voltage line right across the James River near Jamestown, which angered a lot of people. And in each occasion— Dominion would pack up its forces and run stuff through the State Water Control Board and the Air Pollution Control Board before people knew what was going on. And finally, this caught up with them. And, um, you know, with the changes in the state becoming more blue, aspiring politicians started saying, enough's enough. I don't want to be tarnished with them anymore, which is one reason two years ago you have this rebranding effort.
0: Mm-hmm. So the rebranding kind of plays into some some new legislation that's passed, and I was reading in Virginia Mercury this week that, uh, you know, the piece they ran posits that it's not just the opposition, it's not just the economics you and I have already talked about, but also that um, with the Clean Economy Act in Virginia, the new legislation mm-hmm. that just took mm-hmm. takes effect right. like you right. know this month, um, Dominion can now replace a lot of their profits from natural gas with profits from
1: the Clean Economy Act. How so? <laughs> Because what happens is the Clean Economy Act you know, sort of postulates a number of reductions in carbon. And um, it, it's going to do so under a guaranteed rate of return for Dominion, which can be, i don't hold me, to 10 to 14 percent. And so that's what Dominion wants. They want to say, oh, we want to be a regulated utility again and um, because we we're guaranteed our profits. And that's nice. And yet people are going to have to pay for that.
0: The Clean Economy Act in the discussions earlier this year uh, was often counterposed with more of a green New Deal approach, which is you know a more progressive tack on a, a economic restructuring <laughs> around green industry, but really just sort of economic justice you know writ large. you know what's the chance of, of a green New Deal approach taking root in Virginia?
1: Well, I think a uh, whole green New Deal, approached, as you might say, by AOC, something like that will not fly in Virginia. I mean, it's just too, too progressive. So, you know, got to look at things realistically. The Clean Economy Act is probably as good as it's going to get for a while, unless there's a bigger turnover in the General Assembly and more progressive politicians are elected. Because, I mean, much of the old structure with its, you know, very tight committees, abilities to, you know, destroy bills before they are born, that still exists. And um, Dominion, you know, is, is actually in an existential problem right now, and it really wants to preserve itself. I mean, in many ways, it is. You look at it from a business point of view. It is a well-run company. It is profitable. I mean, it's taking a hit right now, but not a big one. And so, you know, they, they want to keep that going. And that's the tension. So I don't know, a really strong total Green New Deal approach is, is out there, but I don't see it.
0: It, it, it does seem like, while this is a setback for sure, I mean, you don't invest billions in something and lose it and not see it as a setback, but what I'm hearing is that uh, Dominion will continue to be the central player in Virginia's energy future, um, but there will be just a more green portfolio, or um, I guess the, the company is accepting a more sort of regulated monopoly structure versus the kind of freewheeling approach that the state has allowed all these years. Um, do you see a, a new fight brewing with the sort of central power networks versus more distributed networks?
1: Yeah, I think that's coming. And as I say, a lot of the newer industries that have been coming to Virginia, mostly from you know other states, especially the West coast, you know, they, they want green power and they don't care about Dominion's domination of politics here. They just they don't. And you know, people like Gates and the Apple people and Bezos and others, a lot of the future of Virginia is in data centers, and uh, but a lot of the new data center owners want green energy. So that's kind of uh, going to change things a bit. And uh, it's kind of interesting because that's a, a consumer demand of a different sort. You know, I don't really see I, – I, as I say, a Dominion is just too big to fail. I <laughs> have to say that, but it's <laughs> true. And unless you see a major upheaval in the whole energy picture, it's going to remain.
0: Peter Galask is a journalist based in the Richmond area. In just a moment, Bold Dominion producer Aryan Baloo sits down with Ivan Penn. He's a renewable energy correspondent for the New York Times. And he walks us through the economic questions that guide utility companies like Dominion. All that and more after a short break. You're listening to Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for a changing Virginia. Visit us online at bolddominion.org. Have a friend who's trying to figure out Virginia State politics? Tell him about this show, and then subscribe in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever fine podcasts are served up. Bold Dominion is a member of the Virginia Audio Collective, online at virginiaaudio.org. Check out all the podcasts from the collective, including UVA Press Presents, including a new book about the life of William Faulkner. That's virginiaaudio.org. Well, in our last segment, we touched on how the Atlantic Coast pipeline was ultimately scrapped because of the ever-present hand of economics. There are some complex economic incentives that govern how utility companies make their decisions. And in recent years, those incentives have been leaning toward renewables. Bold Dominion producer Aryan Baloo talks with the New York Times renewable energy correspondent Ivan Penn.
2: A decade ago, coal was upwards of 50% of our electricity generation. That has declined Uh, in 2020. It even fell below 20%. And natural gas has filled the space. So now natural gas provides about 40% of our nation's electricity generation. And the difference, that gap between what was the 50% on the coal-fired generation and the 40% we have now in natural gas has been made up by renewable sources, uh, solar, wind, and energy storage. So the basic idea was, well, we have this growth in natural gas and the need to meet the demand when the renewables are unavailable. And so we need this extra natural gas capacity, was the argument that the utilities were making.
3: Did the argument hold up? was there really a
2: a need there? Well, so the pushback from the environmental community has been that, well, that need can be made up with renewable sources. The prices of energy storage, batteries in particular, have fallen almost in line with the kind of price drops that we saw with solar over the last 10 years. And We saw solar soar because of that price drop. We now see that with storage and the environmentalists are arguing that, well, yes, we can meet the energy needs with just renewable energy sources. So the environmentalists say, well, there are clearly examples and clearly technologies and increasingly affordable uh, ways of meeting the needs without using natural gas and fossil fuels in general.
3: The The pipeline is announced in 2014. Six years later, they win a big uh, Supreme Court case about it. So why was it canceled?
2: The short answer is cost. Essentially, they said that it became uneconomic, especially at a time when, again, you have renewable prices continuing to drop, solar, wind and battery storage. If the price is too high to cover the cost of building this pipeline, providing the gas and generating the electricity, if that product can't compete in the electricity market, then you end up with what they refer to as a a stranded asset because it, it isn't able to actually produce anything. So that's the fear. That's the danger and so the major driver here is the economics so
3: with projected numbers like four and a half five billion um that's that's a huge number so how does that compare to other pipeline projects and how does that compare to uh you know forms of uh, renewable energy
2: so there are a, a few complicated equations um there's what is referred to as the levelized cost of electricity uh generation um the pipeline itself is a separate variable. Typically, what you look at when you look at the levelized cost of electricity, you're looking at what is the cost of a solar farm and a wind farm versus a natural gas plant, a coal plant, a nuclear plant. You're not necessarily doing a direct cost comparison between a solar farm and a gas pipeline, because they're apples and oranges. And then even when you're looking at generation sources, it's not apples and apples even then. So figuring out the cost, you wouldn't necessarily look at um, a solar farm versus a pipeline. What you're factoring in as a utility is, what are our costs to deliver electricity, given that the pipeline Cost X. Building the natural gas plant costs Y. If you're just looking at, well, which sources are the cheapest generation, solar and wind don't have any fuel costs. So you're taking the fuel cost out of the equation. Your operating costs are lower. A solar farm doesn't require anyone but some people cleaning off panels, whereas a natural gas plant can have tens or hundreds of people operating that facility. So you can see the differences in what's going into those equations, but it's a little bit more complicated than just which one costs more or less. the, The other factor here is the wind doesn't always blow, the sun doesn't always shine. So there's what is called a capacity factor, A hundred percent capacity factor would be a facility that can operate 24-7 nonstop. Nothing is a hundred percent because at some point they've got to close it down for maintenance. But, you know, facilities like natural gas plants, uh, coal plants and a nuclear plant can have a capacity factors in the 80s and 90s, whereas a solar farm uh, would be more in the mid upper 20s because they can't operate 24/7, These are the types of variables that are going into the equation that make it really complex to figure out which one comparatively makes economic sense. But it's difficult again to make that comparison to a pipeline because the pipeline is serving really a different kind of purpose than uh, a generating source.
3: What does this cancellation mean for energy in Virginia and beyond?
2: Electricity costs are going to increase across the country, no matter which way we go with things. Building new infrastructure, new generation sources is going to cost money. And you have all these existing generating sources. When you're dealing with a utility company, if the state, like in the case of Virginia, is mandating the decreased use of fossil fuels, carbon emitting sources, and utilities then have to increase their use of renewable clean energy sources. That does not eliminate the cost that they already spent on existing facilities. Now, over time, you'll see more and more of the benefits of a source, again, like solar and wind that don't have the cost as high on the operations and maintenance side. But in the short term, you could see increases in costs as we transition to a more carbon-free, clean energy, electricity sector.
3: So how likely are we to see this sort of transition happen?
2: The transition is happening. I Mm -hmm. mean, what you see this year for the first time, we uh, saw renewable exceed 20% of the nation's electricity generation. And as I mentioned, we also simultaneously saw for the first time, coal fall below 20%. So you're seeing the transition occur. Part of the transition has been natural gas replacing coal, renewables filling some of the gap, but now you're seeing the tension between renewables and natural gas. And most of that's going to be driven by the economics involved and the cost of energy storage. Once you have the storage part of the equation solved, then it's much, much easier to uh, deal with the solar and wind that can't meet the demand at any point in time. Part of Dominion's argument for uh, natural gas is that they need something that has a quote-unquote on-and-off switch. Solar and wind don't have on-and-off switches 24-7. And most storage right now only provides a supplement for four to five hours. So if you have a big solar farm, you know that covers you during the day, but you only have significant coverage on part of your night. Um, you need storage that is capable of going throughout the period of time from when the sun's not shining to, to the next morning. Or uh, as an alternative, if you have uh, wind blowing in one area of the country, when the sun stops shining in another area of the country, being able to deliver that electricity as an alternative to to storage. So you're just moving electricity around based on where the sun is shining, where the wind is blowing at times of day. And so that's another way of approaching it, but that requires more transmission. You're gonna have to spend some money in one way, shape or form to be able to help this transition. All of the infrastructure just isn't there at the moment.
3: The The cancellation of this project, do you think this is a, a sign of change or is this just one blip?
2: It's clearly, I mean, this is a major project. Um, and it's clearly a, a another sign that the economics for fossil fuels are continuing to hit headwinds. The utilities would argue that, well, that problem was created because the environmental community brought all of these legal challenges, which caused delays. But some of that clearly also is because there is a case to be made that there are alternatives. You look at Dominion, Dominion is leading uh, some of the renewable uh, energy efforts. It uh, just built two offshore wind turbines um, that are a prelude to a larger project. This is only the second offshore wind farm that we have in the United States. And the bigger project that Dominion is building will be the, the first in federal waters. So they are doing some very innovative uh, projects on the renewable side. And so you can see that the transition is more significant today than was anticipated uh, at this point in time. The pipeline, just uh, the the end of that project just highlights the fact that these renewable technologies have really uh, hit a watershed moment.
0: Ivan Penn is a renewable energy correspondent for the New York Times. Thanks to him and also journalist Peter Galaska for joining us on the show today. My is Nathan Moore, and I'm the host of Bold Dominion. Huge thanks to our producer, Ariane Baloo. Find this show online at bolddominion.org. Go ahead and subscribe. It's just a click away. Keep social distancing, y'all, and I'll talk with you again in two weeks.